While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest, of you, the greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Well, our, uh, our family spent 12 good years, uh, wonderful years here at Grace, and uh, so it is, it's really great to be back. And uh, um, I was telling Dave earlier, actually in the last month, I've been able to be back here quite a few times. I got to teach at Blessings, taught um, the dads on Thursday, got to do a Q&A with the youth. So I, maybe a little overexposure here. This will be my last <laughs> time to teach, and then I'll stay away. But um, uh, no, was, yeah, we, we were so invested in this body, so it is really, uh, I, it feels kind of, uh, it feels like an honor to be back and, and, and to teach this morning. Uh, our passage this morning comes out of the book of Matthew, so I thought it might be good to start with a little uh, Matthew trivia here, okay? Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a few questions to uh, give us some background in the, the book of Matthew. Uh, all right, so this one's multiple choice, all right? Matthew's primary audience is A, Greeks, uh, B, Romans, or C, uh, Jews. C, Jews is correct, so his primary audience is uh, Jews. Um, all right, true or false? Matthew quotes from or alludes to the Old Testament more than any other gospel. True or false? That's true. That's true. All right. Uh, true or false? Matthew is the longest of the four gospels. I heard both true and false. It's actually, well, that's actually a trick question. Okay. Okay. Uh, in one sense, it's true. In terms of chapters, Matthew has the most chapters of any of the Gospels. There's 28 
chapters in Matthew. Luke is the second longest with 24 chapters. However, it's false in a different sense. If you look at actually the content or the material in uh, Luke, there's more uh, words and verses in Luke than you have in Matthew. Um, You've got uh, 1,151 verses in Luke versus 1,071 verses in Matthew, okay? Which is an interesting thing to note. So, uh, when you think about the gospel writers, right, they actually, when they wrote their, their, their original uh, book, they, they didn't actually insert chapters and verses, right? Uh, that doesn't come later. In fact, the chapter divisions that we commonly use in our Scripture today uh, were developed, in, at least in the New Testament, were developed by the Archbishop, Archbishop of Canterbury, a guy named Stephen Langton, uh, in a, uh, 1227. And, uh, and then the Wycliffe Bible, the first English translation of the Bible in 1382, was the first Bible to use that chapter pattern. And then later on uh, in 1448, you had a Jewish rabbi who did this with the, uh, the Hebrew Old Testament, right? But originally, when the gospel writers wrote, they wrote one long, complete book, right? And the, the genre, what's the genre, the type of literature uh, of the Gospels is ancient biography. And so it's a full, complete biography uh, or story about the life of Jesus. And so sometimes, actually, when we study Scripture, uh, the chapter and verse divisions can sometimes do us a disservice in our study of Scripture. And so here's what I want to do. Uh, the first half of this talk, I want to I kind of go through and give a, a large a kind of sweeping picture of the entire book of Matthew, all right, and give us the entire context, right? And that is, that is just basic uh, good hermeneutics, good biblical interpretation, is you cannot properly interpret the smaller parts without understanding the larger parts, okay? And so I want to, uh, you know, if, if we think about the gospel of Matthew, it's one large sweeping narrative, And so really, I think to understand the significance of what Jesus says in our passage today, we need that larger picture. All right, so so Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. He's writing to a Jewish audience, and there are are multiple purposes for his writing, but one of the central things that, that Matthew wants to do is he wants to persuade the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the King of the Jews, right? So, uh, the focus is on our King, uh, King Jesus. And so, I want to divide the entire book up into certain sections that I think will maybe help us understand what Matthew's trying to do. And so, I'm going to lay out some structure here. Now, you can come up with different kinds of structure. This is how I kind of uh, structure the book and I think it, what it does is it helps to make sense of the, the smaller parts. So in chapters one through four, so here's what you're going to need to do. Get your Bible out. And um, we're just going to kind of be flipping through uh, the entire book. So turn to Matthew chapter one. We start in Matthew chapter 1, and actually, chapters 1 through 4, I've entitled uh, The Preparation of the King, 
right? So King Jesus in Matthew chapters 1 through 4 comes onto the scene. And right from the get-go, you have his royal lineage. So look in uh, Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of who? The son of David, right? So he's part of the Davidic line. So he has royal lineage right from the get-go. We see uh, his birth in chapter 1. And then you have, in chapter 2, a royal reception, right? Who, who shows up uh, after his birth, probably two years after his birth? You have the Magi. And, and, and interesting to note, the Magi are not Jews, right? They're Gentiles, uh, which begins to give us hints of Jesus' mission that extends beyond the Jewish nation to uh, Gentiles as well. And of course, early on in Jesus' life, you have animosity towards the king already with uh, chapter 2, King Herod, uh, you know, killing all of the young Jewish boys under two, trying to eradicate this king that the Magi have told him about. You have then in uh, chapter 3, right, Jesus' baptism. And so in in the baptism of Jesus, you have uh, a messianic endorsement by God himself. And this is one of the rare places where we have God audibly speaking at Jesus' baptism. And uh, and not only is this a a divine endorsement of Jesus, but then you also have uh, the divine anointing as the Holy Spirit descends as a dove. And then you have, after his baptism, Jesus, right, goes into the wilderness and he's tempted. And so you have this messianic tempting, uh, and, uh, and Jesus, of course, does not give in to the temptation, proves himself worthy of the position. And then from there, in chapter 4, we see Jesus moving into his public ministry. And so what we have in chapters 1 through 4 is the, uh, uh, the presentation of our king presentation of the Messiah. So, five through seven really kind of begins almost a new, new section of Matthew's gospel. And in five through seven, we have uh, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, right? And so, here we have the preaching of the king. And so, in his public ministry, Jesus, is, Jesus goes into his first major teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, as we, we, we look at the, the Sermon on the Mount, we see that Jesus begins to start giving us insight into this kingdom that this king is bringing. And in the kingdom of Jesus, in the Messiah's kingdom, who is invited in? Everyone is invited in, right? Everyone is invited in. In fact, think about who Jesus highlights in the Sermon on the Mount. Who does the kingdom of God belong to? In chapter 5, verse 3, it's the poor in spirit. In verse 4, it's those who mourn. In verse 5, it's the meek. In verse 6, it's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In verse 7, it's the merciful. In verse 8, it's the pure in heart. In verse 9, it's the peacemakers. In verse 10, it's the persecuted. In verse 11, it's those who are accused falsely. And so he highlights uh, often the marginalized in society, not the power brokers. And so we have Jesus in his teaching, right, the preaching of our king. He begins to turn the Jewish messianic expectations on their head. 
And so you have the presentation of the king. In 5 through 7, you have the preaching of the king. In chapters 8 through 11, we move into a new section. And you might label this the presentation of the king. And what we have in this section is really a demonstration of Jesus' authority as the messianic king. And how does he exercise that authority? Well, when you get into chapters 8 through 11, you move from the teaching now to the miracles of Jesus. And so he demonstrates his authority through the miracles. So uh, Matthew, in his gospel, switches from the teaching and now will start reporting on the miracles of Jesus. And so in chapter 8, right, Jesus heals a leper in verses 1 through 4. In verses 5 through 13, he heals the servant of a Roman centurion, right, a non-Jew. In uh, chapter 8, verses 14 through 15, Peter, uh, uh, Jesus heals Peter's sick mother-in-law, right? Um, In 8, 23 through 27, Jesus calms the storms with his disciples, Uh, He, uh, in 8, 28 through 34, he casts out demons from two men, and that's where he he, uh, sends them into the herd of the pigs, the demons, not the men. Um, In uh, chapter 9, he heals a paralytic. Uh, He also resurrects a dead girl. He heals two blind men, and uh, he heals a demon-possessed deaf man. And so, so... Matthew moves into the section where he now he's just recording the various miracles of Jesus demonstrating his authority. And what we see is that Jesus brings the power of God's kingdom uh, through his miracles into the lives often, most often, uh, into the lives of hurting and broken people, right? And so you have the presentation of the king. All right, so now as Jesus is, is conducting his public ministry, what is the response of the leadership of Israel to this messianic king, a king they've been expecting and waiting for and longing for for many, many years? What's the response of the leadership? Well, that's where we move into now chapter 12 and 13. In, ch- in chapter 12 and 13, we now begin to see opposition to the king. So this is our section where we have opposition to the king and a a beginning of the rejection of the religious leaders to Jesus. And so we have in chapter 12, verses 9 through 13, right, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. What's the Pharisees' response to this? Well, in verse 14, it says, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him, or some translations say how to kill him, right? So that's the response. Uh, the, uh, the opposition heats up later in chapter 12, Jesus casts out a demon. And what's the response of the re- religious leaders? In verse uh, 24 of chapter 12, it says, but when the Pharisees heard it, They said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons, right? And this is where we get the the passage about the unforgivable sin. What was the unforgivable sin? It was something that was, in my view, only was able to be committed during Jesus' life and ministry, but it was when you took 
the works of Jesus and attributed them to Satan, right? That's their response to his miraculous deeds. And so what we see in this next section is the, 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 the beginning of the opposition to Jesus as king. Now, we move into chapters 14 through 18, okay? And in 14 to 18, we have the reaction of the king. And what Jesus does is there's a, a period of time where he withdraws and, uh, and he, he begins to instruct the disciples and offers them instruction, and he continues to teach. And in fact, his teaching here shifts from what he's taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And here, Jesus teaches out, uh, he teaches themes out of the book of Isaiah, right? And he, he begins to explain that the Messianic king is going to have to suffer and die for the sins of the people, which is, again, turning the Jewish expectations of Messiah on its head. Uh, the Messiah is going to reign, but he's not going to reign as we might think he's going to reign. Instead, the Messiah is going to reign by becoming a servant. And in fact, we must become servants as well. And again, you have the reaction of the Pharisees. What's their response? Well, in chapter 15, chapter 15, verses 1 through 9, they confront him. Right? And here you see the confrontations kind of heating up. And, and Jesus' response to them in, uh, in verse 7 is, uh, is very direct. Jesus says this in chapter 15, verse 7. He says, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Right? So Jesus gets confrontive. Uh, we like to think, or often I think uh, our, our perceptions of Jesus um, are sometimes, uh, they're shaped by maybe an overemphasis on a very modern view of love, right? But here we see Jesus very confrontive. Now, does that mean he doesn't love the Pharisees? Of course not. But he's calling them to account, right? And so, so you, you, you've got Jesus responding very forcefully. The, 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 the confrontation with the Pharisees is really heated up here. And then we have in this section Jesus continuing his public ministry of teaching and miracles. Okay, so we have the, the, the presentation of the king, right? We have uh, the preaching of the king, uh, we have the, uh, the, presenta uh, the, the, the presentation of the king. Wait, did I say, did I say presentation? Uh, we have the, um, not the, we, the preparation of the king, the uh, present, uh, my gosh. <laughs> Too many Ps. I, I knew I shouldn't have done that. We have the preparation of the king, the preaching of the king, the presentation of the king. Now we have the opposition of the king and then the reaction of the king, Okay. All right, so now we move to chapters 19 through 25. 19 through 25, I've labeled this way. It's the, re it's the rejection of the king. So that not only do they give op opposition, but eventually we see the, 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 the leadership of Israel reject their king. And so you have in this section, in chapter 21, you have kind of the formal presentation of Jesus as king in the triumphal entry when he rides into Jerusalem and the crowds are celebrating, right? Then he goes and he cleanses the temple. 
um, as an act of authority. Uh, and actually in verse 15 of chapter 21, what's, what are the leader's response to this, right? Verse 15 says this, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And so they are unhappy with Jesus. Uh, we get a, a kind of a final block of Jesus' teaching in this section. Uh, in chapter 21, we have really the, the, the last big episode uh, that Matthew records of Jesus' teaching. And again, what's the response from the religious leaders? In chapter 21, look at verse 45 and 46. Matthew writes this, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And then that kind of takes us to the, 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 the scripture reading for today, right? Chapter 22, earlier in chapter 22, in verse 15, uh, we have the Pharisees, and it says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And then he's also challenged by the Sadducees. In verse 23, Matthew 22, verse uh, 23, it says, The same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they ask him a question, right? They're trying to challenge him, trying to catch him, and it ends up, uh, Matthew records that Jesus, is, Jesus silences the Sadducees. And so you have all this confrontation, and so then at the end of chapter 22, you have really the confrontation between the, the religious leaders and Jesus kind of coming to their culmination. And so that's our passage for today, right? And we, uh, we, we, we see Jesus asking them a question, you know, who is the Messiah? And uh, the, the, they respond properly that he's the son of David, but then Jesus uh, referencing a, a messianic prophecy in the Psalms, says, well, if he's the son of David, why does he also call him his Lord? Because he wants to communicate that not only is he the son of David, but he also transcends the son of David. And what is the result? Well, in verse 46, Matthew says this, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. And so Jesus silences them for good, but of course, they, uh, their, their, their rejection continues. And so we have, coming up to this section of Scripture, uh, a clear view that the religious leaders, the, the, the religious leaders of Israel, reject Jesus as their Messiah and their King. And then the final section of the book really is the culmination of the King. This is chapters 26 through 28, where we have the crucifixion, the resurrection, and then the book of Matthew ends with the great commission, right? The commissioning of his people. And so that gives us a big, broad sweep of the book and helps us to kind of see from a, like a 30,000-foot view what's going on in Matthew and what he's trying to do. All the while, he's trying to show his Jewish audience that, the, uh, uh, that, that Jesus, who Israel's leaders reject, is the true Messiah. He is the true king of the Jews. Okay. Now, 
Is that helpful? I think it's very helpful. Do you see how the context of the book sets the stage for Jesus' words in chapter 23? Right, so he's had all of this confrontation. We find confrontation beginning in uh, chapter 12, right? We see there uh, the religious leader's initial rejection of Jesus and his authority. In chapter 14, Jesus withdraws, but the, the confrontation follows him, and the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees begin to, uh, begin to or continue to reject him in chapters 15 and 16. The confrontations continue in chapter 19, 20, and 21, uh, and, uh, uh, and then in 22, we see it all come to a head, right? And he silences them, but that brings us, all that confrontation brings us to this passage that we're in today. And so you see that this is, this is now kind of this, this uh, uh, big culmination of all this conflict. And then what does Jesus do? Well, in chapter 23, right, and let's read this passage again. Chapter 23, notice verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. So pause there. So he's just got done dealing with the Pharisees, now he turns to the crowds and his disciples. And what is he going to say? After all of this confrontation, right, uh, and, and, and this is public confrontation, where he's constantly being badgered and hounded by the religious leaders, Jesus is now going to turn to the crowds when, at, at the culmination of this, the climax of this confrontation, and he's going to turn to the crowds and he's going, to, he, he's going to address them. And, what he's, and hopefully what you see with the context is the significance of what he's going to say. What is Jesus going to say now? These are going to be important words that he is going to lay out in contrast to the religious leaders of the day who have been leading Israel for hundreds of years. And so what does Jesus say? Chapter 23, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven." Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So do you feel the weight of Jesus' words leading up to this point? And there's two things that I want to highlight, two big ideas about Jesus' response here. There are two things that Jesus emphasize, emphasizes in this passage. Number one, Jesus states that these leaders, these Jewish religious leaders, have put themselves in a position of authority that does not 
belong to them, right? And then they've required the people to adhere to laws that they themselves don't live by, right? He highlights their hypocrisy. And what do, what do these religious leaders want out of their leadership position? Well, look at verse 5, 6, and 7. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. So what do they want out of their leadership position? They want the accolades, right? They want the honor that comes with being a religious leader in Israel. And and Jesus offers something else, right? Why is this not the way in the Messianic kingdom? Why is this not the way? Well, verse 8, but you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And no man, and, and, no, and call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Christ. Now, Jesus here is, of course, using hyperbole. He's using, uh, 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 he, he's overemphasizing, or he's emphasizing this uh, through hyperbole or, or exaggeration, right? He's, he, of course, we have fathers, uh, of course, we have teachers, and of course, we have leaders. But in this new kingdom that this king is bringing, in the messianic kingdom, all leadership in that kingdom is subservient to one leader, Right? And so Jesus is giving us a different paradigm for leadership. Jesus, Jesus makes it clear there's only one leader in the Messianic community, and that is Jesus himself, right? And so in verse 10, he says, do not be called leaders, for one is your leader. That is, the, that is Christ. And so in the body of Christ, for us as Christians, this, this should shape our view of leadership, right? Uh, it, this should shape our view of leaders, even within the church. So when we uh, think about our, our pastors or our elders or our teachers or ministry leaders or youth workers or Sunday school teachers, any position of leadership, uh, how do we view them? We view them in light of the fact that there is one teacher, right? And so, in the New Testament, pastors are referred to as shepherds, and certainly they are. But who does the New Testament identify as the great shepherd? That is Jesus. And so, truly, pastors are under shepherds. We are under shepherds under the great, the great shepherd himself, right? We are under leaders, under the leadership of Jesus. And this also I think has broader application, not just in the church, but this should inform our view of leadership outside of the church as well. And so when we think about leadership in other spheres of society, so when we think about leaders in politics or leadership in business or leadership in the community, it should be seen and thought of in light of this idea that there is one true leader Jesus himself. Jesus is not just the messianic king for the Jews. He is not just the messianic king for Gentiles who believe. 
Jesus is the messianic king for all humanity, whether they recognize that or not. And so, these principles of leadership apply across the board in every sphere, not just here in the church, right? And so, this is where, you know, as we work through the meaning of a text, we want to spend some time thinking about, okay, how does this play out? What's the application here? How, what does this look like for us? And so, we might take the area of the church. What does this look like for Jesus to truly be our leader within the church? Well, actually, if you think about it, 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 it offers protection for the church, doesn't it? It protects us from propping up church leaders, to a position that doesn't belong to them, right? It, it protects us from propping up uh, uh, maybe Christian celebrities uh, or, or Christian heroes to a place that doesn't belong to them, and, in key, and it prevents us from developing maybe a codependency on them. Our dependency should not be on any leader, right? Our dependency is on who? the one leader, and that is Jesus. And so, in the church, all leadership, I mean, so here we get practical. What do we do as leaders in the church? Well, one thing that we need to do is we need to constantly deflect attention from ourselves, right? And instead, we redirect attention to our true leader, to Jesus. And that is a difficult thing to do in a culture of celebrity. That's a difficult thing to do in a culture that has these platforms, right, that do nothing but elevate that single individual. If if Jesus is truly our leader, then as a leader in the body of Christ, doing God's kingdom work, none of that work is dependent upon me, right? It's not dependent upon my skills or my gifts right? I am not indispensable. No leader in the church is indispensable. There is only one who is indispensable, and that is Jesus. In fact, we, we, the New Testament writers refer to Jesus, and they use the analogy of a body, right? And Jesus is the, the head of the body. But functionally, is that really playing out in our, our, our church bodies, And so, let's broaden the application. Okay, what does this mean for our leadership in the world, right? I I think what Jesus provides here is a model of leadership for our politics, for our businesses. Jesus provides a model for how these things should be done and, and conducted, and our business should be conducted with an outside world. As a leader, I don't seek out the accolades, as a business leader, as a politician, as a community leader, I'm not to be seeking out those accolades or those places of honor. I don't lord my authority over those who are under my leadership, right? And so there's application for how we are leaders in our world, in our communities. There's application for uh, our leadership in our homes, right? Uh, Think about it. If Jesus is our true leader, if He is our true teacher, how in our homes are we regularly and consistently pointing our families 
back to Jesus as the teacher, right? Do, do we talk much about the leadership of Jesus in our homes? And I, and I mean outside of quote-unquote spiritual activity. Oh, yeah, when I do, oh, we do uh, our Bible reading, you know, we'll talk about Jesus there. No, when, you know, our kids come to us and talk to us about things that have to do with their, their school or their academics or sports or relationships or their social life, right? Is our conversation pointing back to Jesus as our instructor on how to live those things out? Are we applying the, 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 the teaching of Jesus, our leader, to the daily activities of our lives in our homes. And so that is, I think, the, big, the first big emphasis is that, that, that Jesus is our true teacher, and we are to be constantly directing our attention and the attention of others back to Him. And here's the second thing I think we see uh, in, in this section in Matthew. What, what's this, the second thing that Jesus highlights? It's verse, verses 11 and verse 12. Right? Jesus is going to contrast now the Jewish leader's uh, grab for earthly authority uh, with the hierarchy of the kingdom. Right? So there's a clear contrast here between the power grab and what Jesus requires for leadership in the kingdom. Verse 11 and 12, but the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Right? So Jesus states here in these verses that greatness in his kingdom, greatness in the messianic kingdom is marked by what? It's marked by servanthood and humility. And therefore, the pharisaical model, which continues to this very day, the pharisaical model of leadership does not belong in the body of Christ. It's interesting thinking about how this plays out even in the rest of the New Testament, right? It made me think about Paul's qualifications for elders, right? In 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, Paul lays out the different qualifications for elders. And what does he highlight there? Does he highlight their business acumen? Does he highlight, uh, you know, their, their, their power and authority? No, there's only one skill that's highlighted in that list of qualifications for elders, leaders in the church. And one skill is to be able to teach. Every other qualification for leadership within the body, in the role of elder, is focused on the character of the person, right? Because... In Jesus' kingdom, the greatest among you is your servant. Humility marks that kind of leadership. And so, the leadership model we find in our, our current cultural context, in an American context, again, does not belong in the body of Christ. According to Jesus, our leadership is characterized by humble service, right? And this fits with the entire narrative of Matthew, you go right back to Jesus' uh, beginnings, humble beginnings from his birth to the uh, very first visitors. He's our king, and yet he enters the world in a manner that is not fitting the kings of this world, 
right? And so humility marks the life of Jesus from the very beginning. And so this is what we often refer to in the church as servant leadership, right? Proper leadership is serving others. But I think it's important for us to think through what that actually means. What does servant leadership actually look like? Because as I've been in the church for years and years and years, I'd say we may have overemphasized the servant aspects at the expense of the leadership aspects, right? Uh, We may think that servant leadership is merely meek and mild, right? And what it it means uh, is that you set aside everything um, and you... Uh, you, you know, you, you, you become a doormat for people, and that's what servant leadership is. And, 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 of course, that kind of view doesn't carry with it any authority, right? A doormat doesn't carry authority with it. But we see with Jesus, who is our model of this, and leads with humility, even throughout the book of Matthew, we find that Matthew records that, that this is done with authority, and so in, in chapter 7, verse 28 through 29, after Jesus finished teaching, Matthew says this, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes, right? When he does his miracles in chapter 9, it says, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. And so we find in Jesus' humble leadership, we still find people amazed at his authority that accompanies it. And I think in the Christian world, um, sometimes our servant leadership needs to talk a little bit more about the leadership aspect, not just the service, right? We are not required to be doormats in servant leadership, meaning we sacrifice ourselves and our desires in uh, to, to, to everyone else around us, um, and then use Jesus' example to justify that, right? Of course, Jesus came not to serve, but to, uh, he came not to be served, but to serve. But he also says, right, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. What's the great commandment that he gives? Love God, and then the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, right? And so, uh, he doesn't say love your, uh, love your neighbor instead of yourself, but love your neighbor as yourself. And so, when we think about not just servanthood, but leadership and trying to bring those together and, and what it might mean to serve people, we really need to think carefully about that, what that might look like in contemporary culture. So, Let me just throw out some ideas to wrap up here. Uh, For some of us, servant leadership might look like this in our homes. Uh, It might be serving and sacrificing and giving up things for our family. But servant leadership in our homes might also mean that we don't go along with our teenager or young adult uh, in their sinful lifestyle because we want to maintain a relationship with them or we want to maintain peace. Serving them in that situation may be confronting them on their sin. 
Servant leadership might mean that we don't rescue family members from the consequences of their own behavior because we know that would undermine their long-term flourishing, right? Servant leadership might mean denying ourselves of some things, and so maybe it would mean taking the first steps to breaking off an addiction to drinking in our homes, right? Servant leadership might mean I work on my own internal stuff first before I point out the stuff or the junk in my spouse's life, right? That might be servant leadership. Or how about in our communities? What does, what does servant leadership look like in our communities? Servant leadership in our communities might mean we actually speak out on evil and injustices that we see in the culture, right? It's maybe speaking out publicly in various venues, saying things that we'd rather not say, knowing that we're going to take the heat, but knowing that we're standing for what is true and good. That's serving, right? Maybe servant leadership looks like a parent going before a school board and addressing the issues with the sex ed curriculum that's being taught in the school. Or maybe servant leadership for some of us is running for school board or running for a, a, a city council position because that puts you in a position of leadership where you will have greater opportunity to exercise humble leadership, servant leadership. Maybe in our work, servant leadership looks like uh, taking criticism because we don't bow to the social pressure of the secular culture that demands that maybe we affirm sin. I think of someone like a, a, a Baronel Stutzman, who is a florist in the state of Washington, who refused to uh, participate in a same-sex marriage and was sued. And, uh, and her, uh, her case went to the Supreme Court twice, and she ended up losing, right? But that, to me, is servant leadership. Serving the community by standing for what is right. Servant leadership is not only lived out in the way of Jesus, but servant leadership is also committed to the truths that Jesus taught. So, that's, uh, that's our call, I think, from this passage. As we encounter Jesus in this passage, at the end of this big confrontation, the culmination of the confrontation with the Jewish leaders, Jesus emphasizes that our leadership looks different. It is marked by humility, and there's a different kind of authority that comes with it. So, how do we protect ourselves from the view of leadership that's pervasive in our world, that influences us in the media, in our businesses, all around us? Well, I think what we learn from our study this morning is that God's word is absolutely central, right? If Jesus is our preeminent teacher in the body of Christ, how do we primarily sit under his teaching? How do we learn from his example? Primarily through the scriptures, by being students of the word. If you want to grow in your leadership, then study the scriptures, particularly the Gospels. Be a student of Scripture and let this model emerge from the Scriptures. The primary thing that can help us 
uh, to become the kind of leaders that Jesus, our Messiah, wants us to be, is a st- uh, the primary thing is a steady diet of Scripture study and meditation. And when we do that, what emerges is a completely and radically different view of leadership than the culture. Well, let's, p- let's pray and ask Jesus to do this work in our midst. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Your word is powerful. We pray, Lord, that you would guide us and teach us how to handle the word accurately. Lord, as Paul says, help us to be diligent to present ourselves approved as workmen who do not need to be ashamed because we handle the word of truth accurately. Lord, we ask that you would make that a reality in us. We pray that your spirit would motivate us this morning, that you would motivate us to study your word, that you would motivate us to maybe make changes that we need to make, that you would motivate us to lead through humble service. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage that that will take also. We need the work of your spirit. And so we ask for that, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.